Hey, if you were not here last week, we began a brand new series. And uh, how many of you were not here last week? Raise your hand if you were not here last week. You better go on the app or online and find the sermon because you missed the whole introduction to the whole series and it gave an overview of where the book came from and how important the book of Romans is. So we're going to open up to the book of Romans chapter 1 verse 16 and also we are going to kick off a discipleship challenge this morning. So on the way in you should have gotten a little card here that says discipleship challenge. Hold it up if you got it. Go ahead and hold it up. All right, cool. And here's the discipleship challenge. Uh, Read through the entire book of Romans. Pray through all 30 days of the fall prayer guide. You should have already gotten that, but there's copies of it at the welcome table out in the lobby. Four-week streak. Attend church for four consecutive Sundays. That's going to be a tough one. Memorize Romans 116 to 17, 5158 and 623. And then invite one person to church. Maybe they come, maybe they don't, but you have to invite somebody. Now, if you complete this by Sunday, December 9th, you will receive a special gift. We're going to have a whole table set up with Harvest swag. Sometimes people are like, where can I get that Harvest hat or that Harvest shirt or those Harvest socks? Or We actually don't have socks, but you know, people are like, where can I get that Harvest stuff? Well, we're going to have a whole table and you can pick something out, but you've got to get it done. All right? So work on it. Oh, and you'll have to say one of those verses at the table. You will have to recite it, and you won't know which one it is. So you better study for the test. But get after this right now. Small groups hold each other accountable, and let's move forward in our faith together. All right, so Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 18. This is really the the heart and the theme verses of one of the greatest books in the New Testament. Not only this book, but these verses have transformed the entire world around you. The verses we're going to look at today lit the fuse of the Protestant Reformation. And if you subtract the Protestant Reformation from human history, the world as you know it would disappear. It would vanish. Okay, It would absolutely vanish. You would not recognize the world without the Protestant Reformation. Let me share with you the story of Martin Luther and how he became a Christian uh, and how these verses played such a central role in that process. Martin Luther was born in 1483, the son of a Saxon miner. He wanted to become a lawyer until one day in 1505 he was caught in a thunderstorm while walking toward a village. A bolt of lightning knocked him to the ground. Terrified because he was a Catholic, he didn't know what to do, he cried out to St. Anne, the, the patron saint of miners, right? And, uh, which is what his family was. And so, so he cried out, St. Anne, save me and I'll become a monk. He made a rash vow. Well, he was saved, and he kept the vow, much to his parents' uh, chagrin. Luther was a great monk in the Catholic Church. He pushed his body to health-cracking rigors of austerity. He sometimes fasted for three days and slept without a blanket, freezing in winter. He was driven by a profound sense of his own sinfulness and of God's unutterable majesty. In the midst of saying his first Mass, Luther said this, I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. I thought to myself, who am I that I should lift up my eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty? For I am dust and ashes and full of sin, and I'm speaking to the living, eternal, true God. No amount of penance, no soothing advice from his superiors could still Luther's conviction that he was a miserable, doomed sinner. Although his confessor counseled him to love God, Luther one day bluntly burst out, I do not love God, I hate him. Listen, this is a monk who's leading other people in worship. And he says, I do not love God, I hate him. Because he couldn't live up to the standard. This is the guy who's doing it 
who's doing everything he can to earn God's favor. He's devoted his life to earning God's favor. And he says, I do not love God. I hate him. He was so troubled. That came from church history in plain language. Moving on to another source, I read a, a book uh, called Martin Luther recently, a biography by Eric Metaxas. And he records what Luther wrote about his conversion. He said this, Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemously, certain, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon St. Paul at that place, Romans 1.17, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. Romans 1.17 is inserted, but that's the verse that he was pondering and thinking about. He went on to say this, At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. This is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, the passive righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates, Thus, a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. He said, I extolled my uh, sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had before hated the righteousness of God. Thus, that place in Paul was for, for me truly the gate to paradise. He's talking about the verses we're going to study today. This is what saved Martin Luther. And he joked that his office was above the latrine in the monastery. So he was pondering in basically the outhouse of the monastery. He was pondering these verses, and he feels like it was a gate to paradise that he discovered. He joked about that later in life. Well, this monk, striving so hard to earn God's favor, failing to clear his own conscience, one day realized that God offered him a gift of salvation, and these verses transformed your entire world. I trust God is really going to use them to bless you and to bless me today. So in Romans 1, 16 to 18, let's pray, and then we'll get into these verses together. Thank you, Father, for the book of Romans. Thank you that the Apostle Paul sat down and wrote the most comprehensive start-to-finish guide of what we believe about salvation in the New Testament. Thank you, Father, for the beautiful doctrine, for revealing yourself to us, for revealing ourselves to us, for showing us how we can be right with you. I pray that you would use these verses just as you use them like a lightning bolt to save Martin Luther and so many others. I pray that you would use these verses today to show us how we can be right with you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, are you there? Romans chapter 1, verse 16. If you're there, say amen. amen. All right, here we are. It says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed, from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. All right, first thing you can jot down is this. I am not ashamed of Jesus, my Lord. 
A summary, a conviction that should flow out from you as you apply this passage is, I am not ashamed of Jesus my Lord. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now we learned last week the Apostle Paul had a lot going for him in life. He was rich, he was a citizen of Rome, he was well-educated, he had political power, he was, he was ambitious, and he turned away from all of that to follow the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He literally lost it all, and yet he writes, I am not ashamed. He's not ashamed. And we can't be ashamed of Jesus Christ. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Well, what is the word gospel? What is the word gospel? What does it mean? Well, in the Greek, it comes from the phrase good news. And you know, when you, when you see a word, how many of you took Spanish in high school growing up? Or maybe you took, maybe you took other languages, right? I, I had, I think, two years of Spanish, and I, I don't remember much. But I do remember this, that sometimes in other languages, when there's a word, they translate it into something in the other language, something that sounds entirely different, but that's called, you know, a translation. But you can also transliterate, which means you take a word in the original language and you just insert it into the new language and it sounds just like the original word, right? So, for example, I, I didn't know that the word safari is actually an Arabic word. Did you know that? Safari, it's an Arabic word. They say it the same way we do. Cookie is a Dutch word. All of my Dutch friends are happy that I shared a Dutch word in church today. And uh, karaoke, do you know what that is? Japanese. We just took the word and we're like, that's a cool word. It's now part of our vocabulary. And when it comes to uh, the word evangelism, evangelism, we just took that word from the Greek, changed it a little bit, but basically the word evangelism, we just take it from the Greek and it means to share the good news, to share the good news of the gospel. So the gospel means good news. Evangelism means sharing the good news. And I like what Alvin McLean says. If somebody should ask, what is the gospel? We ought to answer, the gospel is not what. It's who. The gospel is the Lord Jesus Christ in his blessed person and in his mighty work. We do believe in the person and the work of Christ. Uh, the person and the work of Christ. When it comes to what we believe, the answer is who. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he means the truth and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the question you have to answer is, who do you say Jesus is? What do you believe down in the depths of your soul about the Lord Jesus Christ? Because your answer to that question will determine whether or not you're ashamed of the gospel. If you say Jesus is nothing to me and nobody to me, what's he ever done for me? Then the gospel is nothing to you, right? And you reject the gospel. But maybe you accept it are you ashamed to admit that you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Let me ask you this question. When is the last time you said the name of Jesus out loud in public without shame? I don't mean at your small group. Anybody can do that. I don't mean in the church gym over coffee. After Anybody can do that. But have you named the name of Jesus proudly in public recently when's the last time has it been years and if so why are you ashamed of the one who saved your soul are you proud of jesus committed to him devoted to him worried most what he thinks about you 
Or are you fickle, divided, doubtful, embarrassed, fearful, apologetic, and ashamed of your faith? In Luke 9.26, Jesus says this, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. That thought should bother you, right? Sometimes, I bet if you're a parent, your kids do something that embarrasses you. Am I right? Especially when they're younger and you're just like, they're mine, they're mine. We were at the mall once and my little son, Jared, back when he was really young, disappeared, of course, right? Uh, in, the, in the house, you can't get him off of you, but then when you go out in public, you can't find them. Here we are walking through the mall. We turn around and he's gone. And then we see him running, or if that's what you want to call it, running out of a candy store with a giant lollipop that he had shoplifted. All right, he stole this lollipop from candy store, and he starts running after us, and then this clerk comes out. It was like a low-speed chase. He's like following him like, where's this kid going? And we're like, yeah, he's ours. Get him back with us. Are you ever ashamed to admit you're with somebody? Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me and of my words, I'll be ashamed of you when I come back in my glory. Now, maybe you're feeling convicted and you're like i know like i know my witness needs to be better i know i know i shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel but i don't know what to do about it let me encourage you um billy graham recently passed away here's a picture of billy graham from the early days and he got off to his start with youth for christ and then eventually his largest rally was in south korea and check this out millions of people showed up for this rally in south korea Hey, I don't know about you, but if I got up on that stage and, and was supposed to talk to that crowd, my knees would be shaking, right? Who, who could witness to a crowd that large? Billy Graham held 400 crusades in 185 countries and territories across six continents. 215 million people attended his live events. That's just the people who went, 215 million. They think the number of people who have heard him speak and seen on the TV is in the billions. Millions of people were saved through his ministry. But did you know he was just a local small-time small town guy, grew up on a dairy farm, and said he was a Christian, but then he attended a rally at the age of 15. And he knew the preacher was a yeller and a pointer. So he and his buddy sat behind the preacher and just inserted themselves in with the choir because they didn't want the preacher to point at them. He didn't even want to be there. And they sat behind. And everything he heard convicted him so deeply that he went home and couldn't sleep. And finally, after coming to these rallies, he repented of his sin and he got saved. And he came home. He had been baptized, he had been confirmed, he did all the steps, but he was not a Christian. And after he repented of his sins, he came home and he said, Mama, I'm a new man. Mama, I'm a new man. Listen, this 15-year-old kid who didn't want a preacher pointing at him and sat behind him, so ashamed of, of God's word being told to him is the one who would stand before millions and declare the news of Jesus to the world. Hey, I don't know your starting point, but Billy Graham had a pretty shameful starting point. And look what God did with him. Look what God did with him. And God can transform you. He can help you find your voice so that you're not ashamed of Jesus Christ, your Lord. Share the good news of Jesus boldly. Share it proudly embrace the truth of christ number one i'm not ashamed of the gospel i'm not ashamed of the gospel he goes on to say for it is the power of god for salvation to everyone who believes so number two jot this down i'm not ashamed to admit that i need to be saved i'm not ashamed 
to admit that I need to be saved. It says here, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. It is the power of God. When we think about power, there's a lot of ways to measure the power of something. Uh, Hurricane Michael just came through, right? And they always categorize hurricanes. And here's uh, some pictures from Hurricane Michael. And what threw people, look at that. Can you imagine how long it would take you to move all of that lumber from one place to the other? Or look at, look at the devastation, the trees. Look at them. Can you imagine the manpower it would take to get that much water uh, in, into a community? And, and here's another picture. It, it was devastating. And, and the problem is, by the way, look at that house on the right there. Do you see how it has crossed the street? There's one woman whose testimony in the hurricane, she said, she said, we were screaming and the water filled up our lower level and then we looked outside and it looked like the whole world was moving and we realized our house was floating down the street. That's the power of a hurricane. The storm surge that comes in, 150 mile an hour winds, and what threw people off is this was just a category one until just before it hit land and then bam, it jumped to within like four miles per hour of being a category five in no time. And so it threw people off. That is an example of something with power, with mighty force. And listen, it takes more power than that to save a soul. Okay, there are no reports of a hurricane uh, transforming a human heart from sinner to saint. Okay. No one was saved by Michael. Michael cannot change a stubborn human heart into a peaceable godly individual. When it comes to the strength that it takes to change a heart, just try getting a toddler into bed. I mean, if that toddler doesn't want to get into bed, it takes a mighty force, some might say a heavenly force, to get that will. Or if a kid doesn't want to eat, sitting at the table, eat your vegetables. I don't want to. Try making that child eat. Uh, my middle daughter, Cassie, we joke, is uh, very strong-willed. And that's a good thing when she commits herself to awesome things. But when she was really young, she didn't like that we went out and left her with a babysitter. She didn't like it. So the babysitter tried to help by giving her a little popsicle. And Cassie's got, you know, little Cassie sitting in her high chair with a popsicle. And, uh, and Cassie just stared off in the distance and let the whole popsicle melt right in her hand. <laughs> in protest! Mom and Dad want to leave me all alone? babysitter was like, it was kind of scary. I feel like she was trying to intimidate me. I'm like, yeah, that's her. Do you know how much strength it takes to change a human heart? To subdue a stubborn soul? The gospel has the power to make an angry man calm. To make a bitter woman joyful. To turn a liar into an honest person for life. The gospel has the power to break strongholds of sin that have held tightly for decades. To stop the thief from stealing. To douse the flames of lust that ravage a man's heart. To break the power over addictions. The vilest offenders can be lifted up out of the clutches of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light. That's power. That's the gospel. When we visited Romania, one of the pastors there, Marius, told us that early in ministry his house was robbed and it was devastating and his wife was afraid. He was worried for her young child and they were rethinking. You know, they were living like attached to a church and still her house got broken into. He said, no, 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 we can't let this 
we can't let this change our call. God has called us to this place, and, and we're going to serve him. Well, many years later, the cop showed up to his house, and he's like, oh, great, did I get broken into again? And they brought the criminal. They caught him. They caught the thief who broke in, and they brought the criminal to Marius's house. He was sitting there in his living room, and the cop said uh, he confessed. And this guy was just sitting there with his, with his head down. And Marius had originally reported the thief stole their carpet, stole his favorite jacket, stole the sausages out of his fridge. I mean, you know, took everything, right? And so the cop said, this guy confessed. And so, so the guy sat there and he explained how he did it. This was like five or ten years later, how he did it, how he broke in. And then Marius said, how did you catch him? And they said, well, he, he confessed. Marius said, what happened? And the guy said, I was in prison for many other things and a man came and told me about Jesus and I got saved and he said, I need to confess my crimes. So I'm confessing my crimes. And then the guy started to weep, and he's like, I'm so sorry for taking your sausages and your carpet. And then Marius hugged the man, and the guy was still wearing his coat. <laughs> and Marius was like, this is my favorite coat, and I'm patting this man on the back. And then the cop said, well, what do you want us to do? And Marius said, I'm fine. I don't want to press any charges. This man is my brother. And the cop said, we worked so hard to catch this man. And Marius said, you didn't catch him. He confessed. Somebody else caught him. He is my brother. I want nothing from him. That's the power of the gospel. But if you don't agree with the bad news, you won't appreciate the good news. The word there, salvation, has a root in the Greek. If you look, salvation, if you take it all the way down to its root, the root of that word means to save, which means you need to be saved. This is a huge point. You have to agree with the Bible on the starting point of your soul. God says man's basic problem is that you need to be saved. You need to be rescued. Not improved, saved, rescued. When you think of the word rescue, I, I got some helicopter footage here of, of a rescue that happened. Uh, this isn't from Michael. This is from the previous hurricane um, last year down in, down in Texas. But uh, here is some helicopter footage. Look at that community, by the way, of when Harvey came through. How they had to rescue. Now look on that house. You see how they wrote help on top of the house. And so the helicopter came over and they started rescuing some people. Um, and this is what the Bible says needs to happen to you. This is what the Bible, look at that. This is what the Bible says Jesus came to do for you. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And if in the pride of your own heart and your self-righteousness, you say, I'm a pretty good person, I don't need to be saved, then you're ashamed of the gospel. You don't believe the truth that you need to be pulled up in a basket to be prevented from drowning. Admit your true spiritual condition. You have to be saved. The gospel has the power to save. You have to publicly proclaim your allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ and tell people, he is my Savior. Hey, are you ashamed of the gospel or have you accepted Jesus as Savior and Lord? Let me ask you this follow-up question. Have you been baptized in public after your conversion? Have you gone public and told people for the first time that Jesus Christ is my Savior and Lord? If you haven't done that, let me just ask you the obvious question from this text. Why are you ashamed? Why are you ashamed? I've heard many explanations of why people don't get baptized, but at the root of it all, you're ashamed to publicly name the name of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, repent and be baptized. It's the first command he's given you once you're a Christian. 
Let me challenge you to nail it down and to say the next time that baptistry is full, I want to be the first one in line. I want to be the first one in line because I'm not ashamed to admit that I need to be saved. Number one, I'm not ashamed of Jesus my Lord. Number two, I'm not ashamed to admit I need to be saved. Number three, jot this down, I'm not ashamed to believe the world needs Jesus. The world. He goes on here to say the salvation of everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Earlier he said the Gentiles, I'm under obligation to both Greeks, barbarians, the wise, the foolish. Whatever nation, tribe, and tongue Paul encountered, he gave them the gospel. Therefore, we believe the gospel is a message for the world. It's not just for people who grew up in the church or who grew up in the Judeo-Christian Western civilization. It's for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. When it comes to the Romans, they believed Jesus was a criminal and an insurgent. Somebody who claimed to be another king. He was just a failed rebel that Rome vanquished. And Paul preached the gospel to the Romans. To the Greeks, who loved wisdom and knowledge, Jesus was insignificant babble. He was a, a laughable answer to life's greatest questions. And they scoffed at the thought that Jesus was a king and that he rose from the grave. They believed no such foolishness. To the Jews, Jesus was a heretic who challenged Moses and Abraham and David's legacy and made blasphemous claims to be God's holy son, and therefore he deserved to die. That's what the Jews believed, and yet the gospel was preached to all of them. Here's the point. If you believe that Jesus is good for you, but not necessary for everyone, you're ashamed of the gospel. You're ashamed of the gospel. Because the truth of the gospel is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of every nation, tribe, and tongue. If you reduce who Jesus came to save, it's because you're ashamed of him. He is the hope of the world. He is the light of the world. No more of this nonsense of, well, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, but other people can have different ideas. You just, you just like shrank the Savior, okay, to, to my little Savior. But surely the cross is not for everyone. That's shame. That's shame. And you should be proud to declare that the one who rules heaven came down to save people from every nation. You shouldn't shrink back from that or in any way feel like you have to apologize. I'm really sorry to tell you this, but someone came to pull you up so that you didn't drown. Sorry. Sorry. What are you ashamed of? Why are you so ashamed to admit freely that Jesus is the hope of the world? I'm not ashamed to believe the world needs Jesus. Do you agree that the gospel is a universal truth? Jesus is God's solution to the sin problem of humanity? That every man, woman, and child needs to hear the truth about Jesus to be saved? That false religions mislead people and give them a false hope that will not save them, that cannot save them? And therefore, that our church should go to the ends of the earth and plant churches and send missionaries and translate the Bible so that everyone can hear the great news. Do you believe that? I believe that. We support a missionary family, the Croslands, with Wycliffe Bible translators because there are so many people in the world who don't even have a Bible in their language. So last weekend at our all-church rally, we shared a video from Matt Croslin, uh, one of these missionaries, and he gave us an update. I'd love for you to, to hear that. Go ahead and play that. Hi, Harvest Palos. My name's Matt Crossland. I run a training school for Papua New Guinean Bible translators. 
um, called Pilot, the Pacific Institute of Languages, Arts, and Translation. There are over 850 languages in PNG, so there's a big need to train Bible translators here. Behind me, you can see uh, our school buildings. We're got, we have three classes going on right now, um, and we're going to go in and take a look at those classes. The first course we're going to go into is Discover Your Language. It's a basic grammar course, and it helps the students to think about how the grammar of their own languages is structured. Okay, we're going to go into initial skills now. This is a course for brand new translators to help them with study skills and uh, critical thinking. Okay, the last course we're going to visit today is Epistles Workshop. It helps the translators to work through issues that they might have in translating certain epistles. Okay, that's a snapshot of what we do here at the training center. Um, we'll be back in July 2019, and we look forward to seeing you then. Bye. Cool. So when you give to Harvest Payless, we send um, support to the Crosslands, and that helps them to, to generate the Bible translation in many languages there in PNG. It's built into our DNA. We believe that the world needs Jesus, and we are not ashamed to admit that. So number one, I'm not ashamed of Jesus, my Lord. Number two, I'm not ashamed to admit that I need to be saved. Three, I'm not ashamed to believe the world needs Jesus. And number four, I'm not ashamed to live by faith in Christ. I'm not ashamed to live by faith in Christ. It goes on to say in verse four, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Um, we are called to live by faith. And when I say live by faith, it has several meanings. It means you come to spiritual life by faith, uh, meaning it is what gives you life. That's called saving faith. Saving faith is where your relationship with God begins. You must be born again. Uh, and so we are alive because he lives if we have faith in him. But then we are called to walk by faith. That's called walking faith. Saving faith comes first walking faith comes second. For many of you, maybe you grew up in a church tradition where they really reversed this. You were taught your whole life is like going up a stairway of faith, and you have to get more of it, and more of it, and more of it, and more of it, and then you stand before God, and you get to find out if you go into heaven or not. Crisis, are you saved? Listen, that's backwards. Saving faith comes first, not last. You can know that you're going to heaven now. You can put your head on your pillow tonight knowing that God is satisfied with you, not because of anything you've done, but because of everything his son accomplished for you at the cross. This is revolutionary thinking. You don't have to climb the ladder your whole life and then find out if you climbed high enough in the end. That's backwards thinking. Here and now you commit your soul to Christ and Jesus saves you. Then you get to spend your whole life 
walking in faith, not out of some guilt. Well, got to go to church again. You know, got to confess my sins again. Hopefully I'll get to heaven. What is that? What is that? That's backwards. You come to life through faith in Jesus Christ. Then you get to live your life for him. So the righteousness of God here, it says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. What does that mean? It means several things, but it means this. Righteousness means God's righteousness, meaning who he is. God displays his righteousness in his son. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. This is the righteousness of God. Jesus lived the perfect life and never sinned once. Behold, the walking, living, breathing righteousness of God. So the righteousness of God is revealed. But then at the cross, Jesus died and was judged for the sin of humanity. That is the righteousness of God because God doesn't let sin go unpunished. You don't want to serve a God who lets sinners off the hook. You don't want that, right? You don't want that. What do we want in a judge? Think about what's going on in America the past month as we've decided and determined what we want in a judge on the Supreme Court. Hasn't it been madness? Hasn't it been madness? Does this man deserve to have the seat of a, of a judge in the highest court of the land? Yes, no, yes. Is he qualified? Imagine if he got up there and he's like, I just like letting people off. I just don't like to convict people. I mean, I look for every way that I can to let the guilty go free. Do you think he'd be confirmed? Uh, no. And that's why God can't be an unjust judge. But he found a way to punish the guilty and to save them at the same time. And the way is he sent his son. This is the righteousness of God revealed. That God would judge sin, but he would also allow the guilty to be saved. I've heard a great illustration in the past. This imaginary scenario. But imagine a judge hearing a case all week long. Based on the evidence, he's like, you know what? I, there's no other way. I have to find you guilty. And I have to assign you a penalty, a financial penalty. And it's going to be big because you are guilty. But then imagine that judge stepping down off the bench and paying the price for the criminal, and the confused clerk saying, what are you doing? And the judge saying, this is my child. This is my child. I, I had to find him guilty, but I'm going to pay his fine. That's, of course, imaginary, but that parallels the idea of God providing for the price to be paid so that the guilty can go free while not erasing the penalty at the same time. We learn that because the righteousness of God is revealed, we are not righteous. We are, and we will never be righteous on our own. Jeremiah 13, 23, we'll put that up on the screen, says this, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. So imagine a leopard at the zoo trying to like lick his spots off. Is that going to work? No. No. That's you trying to get your sin off. I almost got it. I almost got it. It's almost gone. It's never gone. All right, it's never gone. Sin never leaves you. <clears throat> so how can I be righteous in God's sight? The answer is, God must do it. God has revealed his righteousness, so we know who he is, and because of that, we know who we are. The righteousness of God is revealed. But why? Well, it's revealed 
from faith for faith, as it is written, written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now God's talking about the righteousness of man. How can I be made righteous? Well, understand your starting point is you're not right with God relationally and you're not right with God legally. Jesus would have stayed in heaven if everyone was good with God. He wouldn't, no Christmas, no Easter, no presents, okay, would have been sad. But if you were right with God, Jesus wouldn't have had to come. The reason why he had to come is because you're not right with God relationally. And if you've, listen, if you've just lived your whole life assuming that you're good with God relationally, oh, God and I are great. God's always been there for me. No, no, he hasn't. I, I'm one of God's children, and that's all. No, you're not. Well, I, I was raised in a Christian home. Well, then you were around Christians. That's not the same as being one, right? A car, uh, just because you're in a garage, that doesn't make you a car. Just because you're in a church, that doesn't make you a Christian. When have you become an unashamed follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? When were you born again? Admit that you aren't right with God relationally and that you're not right with God legally. If you woke up tomorrow and you got like a hundred letters and people were like, you're in big trouble legally, you'd get a lawyer and you'd lose some sleep. Imagine if you got a letter from heaven saying you have big legal problems in heaven's court of law and we are going to bring those to your attention once you get here. Uh, that's what this book is. Okay, this is a letter from God saying you have gigantic legal problems in God's court of law. How are you going to find an attorney for that? Okay. And the Bible is great. It says we do have an advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one qualified to represent you in heaven's court of law is the Son of God. And he will, he will represent you and take your case. It says the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So that's a quote from Habakkuk 2.4. We've got that verse I think we'll put up on the screen. Uh, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. So the New Testament authors pull from this verse and say, look, contrary to the person who's all proud and thinks that they're right, no, the righteous shall live by faith. Faith leads to being saved. Because it's faith, it's not works. This could be a breakthrough moment for you. It's not works. It's not works. God, when you, are, when you appear at the pearly gates and they evaluate whether or not you go in, God's not going to like give you a grade. Like, well, you turned in most of your assignments, and, you know, but this one was, but you know what, overall, B, and you can come on in because it's not an F. That nothing you do can earn God's favor. Not church, not charity, not generosity, not, not staying out of trouble. Nothing you do can merit God's favor. It's all by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some people don't like the word faith. Faith? Faith? Why, why would I do that? There's no proof. Listen, faith is not blind. Faith is based on seeing God's hand in history and in your own life. And God will reveal himself to you. Faith is not blind. Faith is not a leap into foolishness or danger. Faith is actually moving out of harm's way based on what's coming and what's already happened. Faith is not a wish that something faceless might be out, though I've got faith. It's not a wish that something might be true beyond this realm. And faith is not magic that has some mystical power to make things happen, right? Like, it's not magic when you pray. 
It's not superstition because you have something that someone blessed and therefore you've got this superpower with you. That's not faith. The best definition I ever heard of faith is faith is acting like God is telling the truth. Faith is acting like God is telling the truth. It's active, but it's based on a conviction. You're acting like God is telling the truth about His Son, about His judgment, about His Word, about the world, about the past. You're acting like God is telling the truth. So if you can't earn salvation, how do you get it? Well, it's faith. The righteous shall live by faith. That could be translated, the one who by faith is righteous shall live. And Jesus promised eternal life to those who would believe in him by faith. Listen, this is the gospel, plain and simple. If you admit that you have sinned and broken God's law, and you understand Jesus lived the perfect life and died on the cross in your place, that there the full penalty of God was put on him as a substitute, that he was thrown into a tomb and on the third day risen to life and glory. And then before his own disciples, he was raised up to heaven where he rules now. Therefore, he's the only one in heaven's court who can extend you entrance into his kingdom forever. If you believe that and you have asked Jesus to wash you of all of your sins, you're saved. If you don't believe that, if you're trying any other way, you're not right with God. But he wants you to be right with him. He wants you to understand that you're just wearing yourself out any other way. He wants you, by faith, to live through the Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, like Martin Luther, have you gotten to the point where you realize that you can't earn God's favor? Have you come to the understanding that the only way that you can be saved is through the Son of God? Martin Luther wrote a hymn, and in a moment I'm going to give you a chance to do what he did, to cast off your own hopes of righteousness and to invite Jesus Christ to make you righteous. But listen to the hymn that Martin Luther wrote. He said, In devil's dungeon chained I lay, the pangs of death swept o'er me. My sin devoured me night and day in which my mother bore me. My anguish ever grew more rife. I took no pleasure in my life, and sin had made me crazy. Thus spoke the Son, Hold thou to me, for now on thou wilt make it. I gave my very life for thee, and for thee I will stake it. For I am thine, and thou art mine, and where I am our lives entwine. The old fiend cannot shake it. This is a saved man who found the Lord Jesus Christ and his life and his world was changed because of it. Hey, are you ready to ask Jesus to be your Savior and your Lord? Are you ready to stop trying by works, to stop denying the reality that you need Christ? Hey, are you ready to stop, to stop thinking that you're too bad to be saved? Welcome to the club. I mean, are you ready to put that false thought aside and say the vilest offender who truly believes can be saved right here and right now i'm giving you a chance to say i'm not ashamed i'm not ashamed to make jesus my lord to admit i need to be saved to believe the world needs him and then to live by faith in christ i'm not ashamed let's bow our hearts and close our eyes and let's all close out in prayer together and i want to give you a chance to receive jesus as lord and savior right here and right now Father in heaven, I pray, believing what I just preached, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the salvation for all who believe. It is the power of God, the rescue from above. 
Lord, I know there are some here today who walked into this room not knowing where they stand with you. And maybe there are some who had a false confidence. They thought, like Billy Graham, they thought they were right with you, but they realized today that they're not. They're lawbreakers. They've broken your law. They've broken your heart. Lord, there are some here today who have given up all hope of becoming righteous, and they have just been living with the feeling like they're going to hell, and there's nothing they can do about it. Father, I pray that you would reach down into this room now and call men and women unto salvation. I pray that you would show them your great love, that you would send your very only son to die a horrible death, to pay the penalty so that their sins would be fully paid off. Show them that the righteous shall live not by works, but by faith. I pray that they would act like you're telling the truth and repent and be baptized. Father, I give them a chance right now to speak in the quiet of their own heart, to talk to you, saying this with me. Father, I confess I have sinned and fallen short of a holy God's standard. Forgive me for all of my sins. Father, I have broken your heart. Forgive me for all of my rebellion. Father, I've broken your word. Forgive me for all of my disobedience. Jesus, I believe you are the sinless Son of God. I believe you came into the world to save sinners. I believe you died and rose again. I believe you rule heaven. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. Help me to live a life unashamed for you. Father, for those who are crying out to Jesus right now, I just pray that you would show them you will never leave them. You will never forsake them. You will hold on to them now and forever. You are going to prepare a place for us. And as we worship you, we preview what will soon be life. Worshiping Christ with the glorious angels and the saints for eternity. Father, fill us with this hope. Fill us with this joy. And I pray that you would make us lights in this world who talk about you proudly. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.